Okay, Aaron is. Give me a little woo. So, take your Bibles and turn over to Acts 13. We're still there. And we will be for a little while. Because it's worthy of our attention. And God is worthy of our attention and and focus and study. So turn over to Acts 13. We're going to begin again at 23. I, I think we could probably stay on verse 23 for a year I really do. You look at it and you go, yeah, that's cool. You read through it. You talk about it for 45 minutes and then you move on to the next subject. But man, are you kidding me? Do you, do you see what it says there that Jesus is the Savior? How profound of a statement is that? Could we not talk about what that means for a long time? Could we not? If the angels never tire from looking into the gospel, why do we get tired of talking about the gospel? The angels who are higher than us, higher beings than us, Never tire of looking into the things of God, the gospel. And so I'm going to talk about salvation today. I am. I don't ever get tired of talking about it. You know, I just don't. I need to hear it. I need to hear what's been done for me. I need to hear what's in Christ for me. I I want to further unlock what it is that Christ has accomplished on my, my steed. Don't you? Don't you want to know the beauty and richness and depth of the gospel. We're going to talk about that quite a bit today. So you can take your attention and focus it in on Acts 13.23. And just a quick catch up. We have been studying for some time now the church planting uh, evangelistic missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas in Cyprus, Galatia, and Pamphylia. And uh, two weeks ago, we began to examine the sermon Paul gave in a synagogue on the first Sabbath day after he and Barnabas entered the town of Pisidian Antioch, which is in Galatia. I love the fact that we're seeing this whole experience that Paul had in Galatia. We're seeing that play out now in the scripture. And then when we go back and study and look at the book of Galatians, we know what kind of relationship he had with them and he established during this time and, and beyond. So it's really neat. So he is... At a a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch in Galatia, he began to preach. Uh, Two weeks ago, we we did camp out on Acts 13, 23. And we're going to do that again today, but a couple of weeks ago we did it. And we studied Paul's method uh, for evangelism and preaching. He actually had a way of, of preaching the gospel and presenting the gospel. And one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy in this day and age is that it seems like every pastor who leads in a church, and, and I was one of them that believed this, just believes that they can pretty much do things however they see fit. That they can preach the word however they see fit. That God has, they say, God has given me a brain and he wants me to think. And so he wants me to use that brain and those intelligence that he's given me, that knowledge. And he wants me to put these things together and do these things in a way that makes sense, that's pragmatic and blah, 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 blah. And he just gives me this, you know, this autonomy and freedom to present the word however I desire to do it. And the fact of the matter is that's not the truth. There is a way to preach the word. There is a right way to preach the word and there is a wrong way to preach the word. Now here's what's amazing about God. He still works when we don't do it right. He's bigger than our mouths. He's bigger than our expositions and our preaching. Is he not? He is. I get excited about this, you can tell. You know, it's taken me the better part of 10 years to to get to the point where I can preach the way I do now. And guess what? In 10 years I'll probably preach completely different. 
As long as I'm humble and wanting to align myself with the word of God and, and learn how God wants things done, that's my heart, that's what I want. But there's so many that just challenge that. They just do whatever they want. Paul had a particular way of evangelizing people, of presenting Jesus Christ, of preaching, because that's what he's doing. If you remember from the text, we learned three important things about his way of presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we were exhorted by the Lord to follow Paul's example when we go out and spread the gospel or share it in our workplaces or share it in our homes or wherever it is. Do you remember the three things that I mentioned that we saw in the text the first thing was that Paul did not begin with the cross. He didn't start with the cross when he began to present Jesus to people. He built a contextual foundation, talked about God, talked about history, talked about how God has been moving through history. It's like he gives a, an overview of all of redemptive history, not the moment or the point of impact at the cross. And how many of us go out and we try to share Jesus with people and we start with the cross and they don't even believe there's a creator God. So now the cross and this God dying on the cross makes no sense to them because they don't believe in it. They believe in evolution. So you got to bring things to a place of understanding to some degree before you can really present these gospel things. And so he never began with the cross. He began with history. He wove the narrative of redemptive history together so he can get his audience attention and help them to understand why the cross is significant and important. We need to do the same thing. Another thing, Paul did not suggest truth. He proclaimed it. How many times have you seen guys sit around and, well, you know, I think the word means this and I think it means that. And let me, let me pull a couple of insights from my journal. Uh, really? No, no. Paul didn't, it, it, truth to Paul wasn't subjective, it was objective. The scriptures were objective, literal truths that he proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why did he have such an impactful ministry? The most impactful ministry I've ever read about and studied. I mean, his ministry makes even Reformation, you know, ministry and, and the revivals that happened then look pretty minuscule when you consider what happened in the first century. Why? Because he proclaimed truth. It is the truth that does what? It sets us. And so if we play around with it, we dance around with it, and we make these suggestions, and we don't just proclaim it in its fullness and in its literalness, we're left people to just kind of disregard it. We just need to proclaim it, and that's what he did. And he left the results in God's hands. Huge. Last thing, Paul did not give his personal opinions. <laughs> He gave the scriptures. What a thought. Paul was not a pontificator. He did not sit up in front of people and share all his little insights and, and you know, well, I think it means this and I think it means that, spinning things around, changing meaning. He just basically gave people the scriptures. If somebody came to him with a counseling need, and I would imagine it happened hundreds of times with him, what did he do? He gave him the scripture. He would give scripture. He would let scripture speak for itself. And that's amazing. And, and yet we live in a time and age of pontification. And it's not good. Well, this morning we're going to continue to examine Paul's sermon. And we will pick back up in 23. Let me pray one more time. Because I don't think you can read enough scripture. And I don't think you can enough, pray enough. That's for sure. Father, we just want to give up this time to you, Lord, and surrender it to you. Remind us of your presence, Lord. Remind us of your grace and your love for us and your desire for us to know the truth, to accept the truth. We want, we want to believe the truth this morning because of your grace, through your power, 
We want to be changed by it. That's what the saints desire. That's part of being a new creation. Help it to be so. Help it to, to happen, Lord. Change us through it. May we not be just hearers, but doers. Open our minds and hearts to you right now, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 23, one more time. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus and it says what? As he promised. It is important for us to remember who Paul is preaching to. The synagogue that he's preaching at was filled with Jews and non-Jews who loved and worshipped Israel's God, Jehovah. There were God-fearers in this group, which are kind of like Gentile converts, if you will. And then there were regular old Jews in there, you know. Jerusalem Jews, if you will, living up in this area. And so this room was filled with a mixed group of people who loved God and were seeking God. After being given the floor during the teaching part, you know, this rabbi of this particular synagogue kind of did all his part up front and then handed over the, the teaching part to Paul and Barnabas. Um, after that initial part, you know, ended and he began to, to teach, he Began, Paul began by giving a short overview of Israel's redemptive history. I just mentioned that. He told his listeners that God promised Abraham that he would bring a savior to the people. He told them that God kept and carried this promise for about 2,000 years, another 2,000 years through Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, the judges, and then all the way up to King David, about 2,000 years. Made a promise 2,000 years later. He then made this extraordinary but controversial statement about Jesus in verse 23. He basically said, paraphrase, God fulfilled his promise, that promise given to Abraham and carried throughout all of history. God fulfilled his promise by bringing through the line of David your long-awaited Savior, Jesus Christ. This statement would have been offensive to many of Paul's Jewish listeners because they had rejected Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to just flesh out Paul's statement a little more before jumping to the next verse or going beyond 23. One thing that I noticed is that Paul said, through King David, again paraphrased, through King David, God brought Israel a Savior who is Jesus. That is essentially what he has said. Why didn't Paul say, through King David, God brought the world a Savior who is Jesus? Do you notice in the text how he's specific to Israel? He didn't say God brought through that whole ordeal and through all that redemptive history a savior to the world. He says to Israel. I found that to be interesting. It, it, it sort of struck me to some degree. Through King David, God brought Israel a savior who is Jesus. Paul knew that there were non-Jewish Gentiles in the room. He knew it. Were these Gentiles somehow excluded from the saving work of Jesus? Had Jesus come exclusively for Jews and nobody else? No, not at all. Not at all. Now, it is important to recognize that Paul had an additional method or way for presenting the gospel. We could add this to the list of things that we learned a couple of weeks ago. I just mentioned them. When Paul entered a city, he first located the Jewish synagogues and then 
made plans to visit them so that he could preach the gospel. This is his pattern when you study the book of Acts. When he comes into a city to evangelize the city, he goes to the Jewish synagogues first. That's the way that he did it. Paul had been commanded by Jesus to make the Jewish people his first priority in terms of evangelism. Romans 1.16 makes this clear, where Paul wrote that the gospel, what? It goes to the who? The Jew first, and then also to the Greek. So Paul's method was to first preach to the Jew if there were Jews present. In fact, whenever he went into a city, he went to look for a place where there would be Jews. First thing he does over and over and over through the book of Acts. This is exactly what we've seen in the text that we've been focused on for several weeks. Chapter 13, verses 16 to 23. That's the pattern there. Paul began with the Jews. You look back at verse 16. How did Paul begin his preaching, his sermon? Who did he first address? Look at 16. What does he say? Men of Israel. You see it? That's how he started. Men of Israel. Who are the men of Israel? They are Jewish men. This is an example of Jews first. And then he said, and you who fear God. Who are those that fear God? They are God-fearing Gentiles. There is your example of Gentiles second. Jew first, Gentile second. Now why did God put the Jewish people first? Why does Paul do what he does? Why, why does he do it? Why, why are the Jews, I wouldn't say they're exalted by any means, but they are the first target of gospel evangelism. Now, why is that? Why did God put the Jewish people first? I have, yeah, you can consider at least these six scriptural facts or reasons. Number one, the Jews have a priority over Gentiles as the chosen people of God. When God chose a nation for himself, he picked Jewish nation. And he called them the least of all. And maybe that's why he picked them. Because they were the most minuscule, powerless, pathetic group on the face of the earth. That's who God chooses to save and work through. The lowly. The Jews have a priority over Gentiles as the chosen people of God. Deuteronomy 14, 2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God chose them. Doesn't mean that he doesn't choose others at some point or had a plan to choose more, but he set his heart and his affections back in history on these particular people. And so they have a priority in that they are the chosen people of God. This is something that Paul realized as a Jew and did not take for granted. Number two, the Jews have a priority over Gentiles as the guardians of God's special revelation, the Old Testament scriptures. Romans 3, 2, the Jews were, it says, the Jews were entrusted with what? The oracles of God. Who did God reveal himself to, his word to, his redemptive plan? Lithuania? No. The Jews. 
The Jews are the people that he came to and issued the law and, and gave this gospel narrative to. The oracles of God, the revelation of the Old Testament. Doesn't that kind of show us how they have some priority? That he gave his revelation to them for them to give to the world. Began with them. Number three, the Jews have a priority over the Gentiles in that the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ, came first as a Jew to the Jews. Our Messiah, our Lord, our Savior was Jewish. And it's always baffled me in how Christians and so many can become so prejudiced towards the Jews. Amazing the things that have been done against Jews in the name of Jesus Christ when in fact Jesus was Jewish. Romans 9, 5, to the Jewish people belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh, humanity, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Romans 9, 5. Jesus was Jewish, came through the Jewish people. Priority. Number four, the Jews have a priority over the Gentiles in that salvation is from the Jews. Well, what do you mean? It's from Jesus. He's Jewish. The Jews have a priority over Gentiles in that salvation is from the Jews. What did Jesus say uh, to the confused and idolatrous woman who was drawing water from a well in Samaria? Do you remember that whole experience there in John 4? What did he say to this woman? confused, idolatrous, trying to worship false gods, trying to do what she could with what she knew. What did he say to her? He said this in John 4, 22, you worship what you do not know. How many people today worship what they do not know? Buddha, Allah, Joseph Smith, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnessism. They worship what they do not know. And what does he say? What does he say? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, referencing the Jews. And he says, for salvation is from who? The Jews. Salvation comes through the Jewish people, through a Jewish Messiah, through a historical narrative, which is God essentially speaking to the Jews and through the Jews. Massive priority here. Number five, the Jews have a priority over the Gentiles in that Paul evangelized Jews first when he brought the gospel to a new place. We're seeing that play out in our text. Paul, when he went into a place, spoke to the Jews first. If you look a little further down at verse 46 in chapter 13, after the Jews in the synagogue repudiated Paul and Barnabas, what did Paul and Barnabas do? They, what, 1346, they spoke out boldly saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to who? To you. It is a priority, an imperative and a priority that the Jews be presented the gospel first. Given first dibs, if you will. Number six, the Jews have a priority over the Gentiles in final judgment and final blessing. Romans 2, 9 to 10. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. 
but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. What has Paul said? He said, Jew first, Greek second. But guess what? If the Jews blow it, they're going to get judgment first. Gentiles blow it and don't receive Jesus Christ, they're going to get judgment second. The order is the same. It goes to the Jew first. If they reject it first, judgment comes to them first. If they accept it, blessing comes to them first and vice versa. What Paul essentially means by that is that the priority that the Jews have to believe, if it is rejected and squandered, will result in a priority of judgment. And if they are grateful for their priority and trust in the mercy of their Savior, then they will go first into the final blessing of God. You know, while reading this, I couldn't help but be hit by a wrecking ball while I was studying this. I have no as a pastor at this church, I have zero ministry to the Jewish people, and yet they're a priority. I read a statement by somebody that I thought was shocking, and, and, and I thought it was a little extreme, but his take on it was that if the church neglects the Jew, how can we consider them to be the true church? What? You're trying to say that I might not be a true believer? Well, that's a little extreme. I have no doubt that I'm a believer. God saved me. It's obvious. It's not me that's done anything. It's been him. I believe that if God were to not sustain my faith every second of the day, I would be immediately back to being a non-believer. He not only saved me, he sustains my faith. He causes me to persevere. But how can I not have a heart, prayer, a fervency for the Jewish people? They are a priority. Does that shock you at all? Do you have a ministry to the Jewish people? Wow. Maybe we should reconsider the way that we do ministry at this church. Personally. And at this church. Maybe we need to look for ways. And I have not talked to the elders about this yet. And I think they would agree with me. We need to seek out ways to have Jewish ministry. It's not like, well, that was Paul's thing, and, and, and as Cameron alluded to earlier, you know, some people are just blessed and anointed with a special ability to go door to door. Some people are blessed and anointed with a special ability to reach Jewish people. No, every Christian bears the responsibility to make the Jew a priority. First of all, in this church, me. And I've done nothing and I'm not okay with that. I don't know what to do. But something has to be done. We need to pray, Colby. We must pray for the Jews. Seek out the Jews. Do whatever we can to support them. We need to see them. We need to preach the gospel to them. It's a scary thought that if we neglect them, what will come our way? We should not. Now that we have, we could end there and just cry, <laughs> right? You know what? Let this, this next section, because let me, let, me let me just reason with you. We don't do anything based on our own ability, our own desire. We are acting out and responding to the grace given to us. We are responding in our lives to what God has done, his finished work. That is what propels our ministry. 
We're not compulsed to do it or any of that. When we realize what Christ has done for us, that moves us to do ministry to Jews, Gentiles, Susie at the supermarket. It doesn't matter. We have to focus on what has been accomplished for us. And when we do that, that changes us, that secures us, that carves out the right identity. And then we begin to live differently. And then the Jews mean something. And walking in holiness means something. Whatever it is. And so right now, we're going to take time to focus on what has been done for us. And God willing, I pray, that we would be moved to act. Amen? We're going to get to it. Again, Acts 13, 16 shows this pretty clearly that Paul addressed Jews first, and that he addressed non-Jews secondly. Why did he do that? Just getting back to the idea of salvation being for Israel alone, which is what the text seems to imply at this juncture, at what he said, the Savior of Israel. Going back to that thought before we move forward, that is not true. Even in Paul's statement, we see how the gospel and salvation is for all walks of life, all people. We see it in his, in his uh, salutation, do we not, where he says, men of Israel. He doesn't stop there and say, hey, guess what? Israel, you know, you got a savior, Jesus Christ. He also says those who fear God. And so right there in his own statement, in his salutation, we see that the gospel is for the Jew and we see that it is for the Gentile because he addresses both groups of people which is phenomenal, which excites me. Why did he do that? Why did he say men of Israel and those who fear God? Because the gospel's for both. When Joseph and Mary took baby Jesus, well, baby Jesus, when they took baby, it reminds me of that stupid race car movie. I like little baby Jesus, little cute little toes, so dumb. What was that, Will Ferrell in that thing? What was that? That's it, yeah. I'm glad you haven't seen it. They had no idea. They're like, it's a waste It's a waste of Netflix. Uh, Actually, it's pretty funny. But anyways, when Joseph and Mary took baby Jesus to the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth, a man named Simeon picked up baby Jesus and joyously exclaimed, what? Luke 2, 30 to 32, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Right there in Simeon's statement, we see how the gospel goes beyond the nation of Israel, the people, the Jewish people. Another way to see it and another example of how the gospel is broader than just the nation of Israel is obviously one of our favorite verses that people quote all the time at all the sporting events and everything and... You know, sloshing beer in one hand and holding the sign up with the other. Woo-hoo, you know, it's like, okay, well, you really do need John 3.16. I'm glad you have it. Not that I don't like drinking a beer once in a while. I, I definitely do. I don't like sloshing them around. It's a waste. John 3.16, for God what? What did he do? For God so loved Israel. Yeah, wow. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
God gave his son for every walk of life, every tribe and tongue, every color, every ethnic background, Jewish, Gentile, pagan. God gave his son for every type of person in every corner of the world. Romans 1.16, the whole verse quoted it earlier a little bit. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To who? The nation of Israel? No, to everyone who believes. And then he says to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. Everyone who believes. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, French. Not too proud of that. It's all right to be a Frenchman. Just don't take me into battle. I'll run. 1 John 4.14. Love this verse. John says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of what? The world. You see, Paul knew this. He's just speaking at this point to these Jewish people in the synagogue. He's really targeting them. Yes, he's given a salutation that includes all, but he's framing everything in a Jewish context so that he can first reach the Jew. But we know, according to the scripture, that Jesus is for every type of person, not just Jewish. And don't you glory in that? Aren't you glad that God's plan of salvation is for all types of people throughout all of the world? Now let's move on, and here's where we're going to focus on some of the things that Christ has done for us that are in him. What exactly does the, the gospel or saving work of Jesus Christ, which Paul is basically mentioning here, what does it accomplish for those who believe? What exactly are we saved and delivered from, and maybe two? I have 13 things for you. And there's probably 2,500 things. 2.5 million things. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about angels that never tire of looking into it. Okay, so it's broader than I can paint for you. It's larger than I can. I can give you a glimpse. I can do my best. 13 things, important things, life-changing things. And some of us in this very room need to realize some of these things that have been done for us in Christ. We have yet to realize these things, and that's why we live the way that we do, or that's why we struggle the way we do, or whatever it is. Number one, we are saved and delivered from captivity to the law of God. Romans 7, 6, but we are now released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code we that are in Christ are not bound by the law we are not condemned by the law when we break a commandment the grace of God covers it does not mean it's a license for sin by any means in fact the paradox of Christianity is this you are saved from condemnation of the law to obey the law through the Holy Spirit, you actually have the ability now, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and you are a new creation being regenerated by that very Spirit of God, you have the ability to actually live out and glorify God by being obedient to the commandments that he's given. It's an amazing thing. You're saved from the penalty of being a lawbreaker, because we all are, and then you're saved 
the paradox? To being able to obey the law rightfully in a way that glorifies and honors God. I mean, that's an amazing thing. But you know what? We don't wake up each morning compelled by some desire to, to, to please God and hopefully to secure some mode of salvation for ourselves. And we look at the Ten Commandments. If I can live these things out really good this week, then God will save me and I'll be okay. That's not what we do. No, if we look at the law at all, we look at it and say, how can I please God with my life? You've empowered me to live these things out. Where am I falling short? We're not doing it to try to get saved. We're doing it. We are obeying because we are saved. Obedience to the law is not the root of our salvation. It is the fruit of our salvation. Amen? We obey because we've been, made, we've been given the ability to obey, if you will. But we are not bound by the law. It does not condemn us. The law is a focus, but Christ is our primary focus. And if we keep our eyes set on him... And we follow him, we humble ourselves and follow him, we obey the law. It just happens. It's the natural recourse. Natural course, I should say. Number two, we are saved and delivered from the wages of sin and death. We are saved and delivered from the wages and sin of death. Sin and death. Romans 6.23, one of my favorite verses. For the wages of sin is death. What does sin bring? Death. We all die because of sin. Adam and Eve would have lived forever. They sinned and then they had a death date. 900 years later or whatever it was. All people die because of sin. Sin entered the world and brought with it death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Sin brings death. But he says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are saved and delivered from the wages of sin and death. If you're a Christian this morning, oh yeah, your body's going to pass away, but you're going to live with the Lord forever and you're going to receive a resurrection body in the future and come and reign and rule on this earth. How wonderful is that? Did you know that the lost, that those who reject Jesus Christ will also be resurrected to suffer in bodily form in hell? Not for you if you're in Christ. We are saved and delivered from the wages of sin and death. Basically what that means is that Christ in his perfect living and obedience achieved for us a righteousness we could never achieve for ourselves. And it's called the doctrine of imputation. He takes our sin, our sin and death, and takes upon his own body at the cross and gives us his perfect righteousness. One of my favorite of all doctrines. When God looks upon me, he sees a righteous person. I look in the mirror, I don't see one. I see one that's falling apart with new marks and moles and hair coming out of places and, you know, and death is coming. Man, I felt like I was going to die this morning after DJing till 1 o'clock last night. And, you know. But when God looks upon me, he sees me wrapped and clothed in the righteousness of Christ where sin does not have a devastating effect on anymore, and I will be an overcomer of death at some point in the future through the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. How wonderful is that? It also means that I have some power through the Holy Spirit over sin. That God's Spirit living in me empowers me to overcome temptation. Not all of it. I mean, it can 
But it's my inability to, 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 to resource that power, to, to receive it, to acknowledge it at times. But man, he's given me power to be an overcomer of sin. I don't sin quite like I used to back in the old days before I was a believer. I mean, I, believe me, I sin. Sometimes I repeat some of those things, like lust things and stuff like that, that, that men struggle with. I hate that. But I'm not the same that I was before I was saved. I'll tell you that right now. Over a 10-year period, God is changing me. Man, wages of sin and death have no power over me. They have no power over you. Glory be to God. Number three, we are saved and delivered from the justice and wrath of God. Not a popular subject today. We want to see God as just this all lovey-dovey, my little pony God. He just never has a mean thing to say to anyone and, you know, runs around frolicking with handing out lollipops. Are you kidding me? Do we not know what the scripture says about our God who causes the mountains to shake? Who through his son, Jesus Christ, caused a storm to cease? Doesn't sound like a My Little Pony God. A God who casts those who reject Jesus Christ into hell in the blink of an eye. You ever read Hebrews 10, 26? For it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Doesn't sound all that My Little Pony-ish, does it? We have a God who is love, and we have a God who is just. We are saved and delivered from the justice and wrath of God. Romans 3.25, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus took the justice and wrath of God upon himself. If you are in Christ, he took the justice and wrath of God against you for being a rebel against him, for sinning against him, for blaspheming his name, however it was. He took all of that mucky, nasty, past sin, present sin, future sin. He put it all on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became a propitiation. He took our place. What an amazing, life-changing truth to know that we have been rescued from the justice and wrath of God. And yet, how many Christians walk in fear of God? Because they believe that flames of, you know, our flames of his wrath are being stoked against them. If they don't get on board and start doing things right, he's going to take them out. You know, I will say this. God has a special love for his people. And he is incredibly gracious and merciful towards his children. Have we not seen him carry his promises throughout all of history with the Jewish people, who are, in my mind, the most rebellious people on the face of the earth? I'm no different than them. Christian, you don't have to worry about the justice and wrath of God. When you sin, it's not coming against you. He may discipline you. Why? To teach you something. For, to cause you to learn something very important. Maybe about your faith, about your trust in Jesus Christ. It's spectacular to know that, that I have been rescued from his justice and wrath. When I contemplate the way that I am and my own sin and my struggles, my daily struggles, when I see myself as just a pure, unadulterated sinner at times, don't you ever feel like that? You just get so tired of yourself? I don't have to look up and go, don't kill me! Well, he did take out Ananias and Sapphira, so he could remove me before I do further damage on earth. But at least I know he'll bring me into his loving presence. But I don't have to worry about his wrath and justice. 
Christ took every ounce of his wrath and justice upon his own body. Why hast thou forsaken me? He became sin who knew no sin. Amazing. Should set you free. For we are saved and delivered from eternal fire and torment in the place that was prepared for the enemies of God. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus will say to all who rejected him, this is what he says, depart from me, you cursed, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Christian, <laughs> hell is not your destiny. Okay? You have been saved and rescued through what Jesus has done from that doom. You have been put on a different path to glories unlimited as opposed to sufferings unlimited. I don't have to concern myself with being sent to that place where the enemies of God go, more particularly the devil and the demons is what the text says. I'm going to heaven. How wonderful is that? How wonderful is that for you to know that you will be in the presence of the Lord when you breathe your last breath and you will be brought to this earth with him to reign and rule forevermore. That's your destiny, Christian. Wow. What we have here is just a temporary thing. Paul says we're in these little tents, this little bodily tent. It's going to perish, but it's going to come back resurrected, and we're going to rule and reign with the living Christ. Amen. Wow. I'm not going to hell. And I'm saddened by the thought of anyone going there. Thus the reason why we evangelize. Number five, we are saved and delivered from an inheritance of doom and destruction. Kind of goes along with the last one. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and our Father of uh, Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He caused it, not you. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven. Wow. I come from a family that is leaving behind no inheritance. I'm not going to get anything from my folks. There's nothing in this world that's going to be passed over to me. My, my parents are, uh, you know, just regular old folks, never made a whole lot of money and pretty much broke like me. And, you know, it's not going to be a lot coming down the pike for me when, when my mom, you know, goes. And, I, and I, I don't want that at all. I want her to live. And I don't have much coming in this world when it comes to inheritance. And quite frankly, I don't think I have a whole lot to leave behind to my own children being a check-to-check -check kind of guy. One thing I know I want to impart to them, that's the gospel of grace. But man, I've got a glorious inheritance in Christ. Paul says, who can speak of, who can fathom the riches that await the Christian? You ever stop to think about that? We get so hung up in this world. Uh, trying, to, trying to advance ourselves in this world or trying to do this and trying to do that or, or we don't have anything and so we despair or whatever it is, it's never enough and we struggle and struggle and struggle. And I, I get it, I struggle. I struggle with you. I wonder how many times we struggle at the expense of not realizing what we have awaiting us. And I think when we begin to realize what awaits us, 
which is incredible, unspeakable, beyond our scope, I think we'll live differently here. Bruce talked about living for heaven last week, didn't he? Living for what we have there, living as this heavenly-minded person, not an earthly-minded person. We have been saved and delivered from an inheritance of doom and destruction and have been given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's where? It's kept for us where? In heaven. I can't wait to wrap my arms around some of it. You know what I think the ultimate inheritance is, though? It isn't heaven itself. It's God. Right? What is heaven without God? It's just another place. Your inheritance is God Almighty. The purest love, purest grace, purest relationship, purest of all things. He's your inheritance. He's who you gain to spend your eternity in His mind-blowing, love-saturated, perfect, no-struggle eternity. That's where you get to spend it with Him. He's your inheritance. God is the gospel. Can't wait for that. Six, we have been saved and delivered from spiritual blindness. Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. We are saved and delivered from spiritual blindness. We are not blind. We can see God clearly. We can see his revelation. We can study it, absorb it, apply it, live it out, enjoy it. We see the world differently, do we not? Do you not see the world differently? I began to see it differently when I got saved. Wow, things aren't quite as they seem. There's something else playing out here. And now I can see it with my eyes as the scales were removed. We don't grope around in this world. We have sight. We can see the revelation of God. We can see the movement of God We know that his plan is coming to fruition. He is doing these things. We can watch and hear and listen and see with our own eyes. And we can trust him. We get so wrapped up in the world and politics and all the things that are playing out. And we moan and groan over this president and what he's doing. And oh my gosh, there's never been one more evil than this guy. And oh, what's going to happen in Iran? They're going to nuke, you know, Israel if Israel... I tell you what, we better pray that God protects Iran from Israel. Not the other way around. You see what happened in 1967? When Israel smoked four nations... God is going to carry out his plan with his nation, with his people. But here we get all wrapped up in this. I'm going to get a little passionate. We get wrapped up in it. We can see beyond what we can see. Can we not? How glorious it is to have eyes that can see. 30 some odd years of my life groping around in darkness. Not having sight. I could see, but I couldn't see. And now I can see. Aren't you glad that Christ has given you sight? You know, his life, his death, his resurrection, through that comes sight. You can see. It can be one of the scariest things in the world to be blind. Especially if you've had sight your whole life and you go blind, physically blind. Having to depend on people. The same thing in a spiritual way. 
Seven, we are saved and delivered from estrangement to God. I love this. Ephesians 2, 12 to 13. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were estranged from our creator God. But through the finished work of God, we are adopted as his sons and daughters. You belong to him. Oh, what a powerful truth. That I belong to God, the one that created all this. I am his child. I'm not a child of this world. I don't belong to this system. I'm not a child of the devil. I'm not a child of my workplace, of my family heritage. I'm none of that. I'm a child of the king of all kings. That's what Jesus secured for you, friend. You belong to him. You're in his kingdom now. We were estranged and brought into his family fold. Eight, we are saved and delivered from condemnation. I like to call that shame and guilt. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore what? Who knows it? That's right, for who? No condemnation. We are not Condemned by our creator, therefore when humans uh, condemn us, which they often do because of our faith, there's no power in their condemnation on us. We're approved by God. There is no condemnation. There is no shame and guilt. I don't have to live my life in perpetual shame and guilt over who I was or the mistake I made yesterday. I can live in his perfect satisfying grace. And how many Christians walk around so defeated in shame and in guilt? Christ died on the cross to so take it. Nine, we are saved and delivered from a meaningless life. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in Glory, we are in Christ who lived the most incredible, dynamic life one could ever live. In fact, no one could ever live the life that he lived because he was truly God. And we are in him. Christ's life was filled with purpose and meaning. He came to die, to live and to die to take away the sins of the world. And we have been placed in him, and we share in his life as recipients of the gospel. We share in his life. In fact, he lives through us, and therefore our life has meaning, and it has value, and it has purpose. It has direction. Yeah, I had a meaningless life before coming to know Christ, and I spent my whole time trying to find or trying to carve out meaning. And to always end up at the same place of despair and emptiness, shame, guilt, meaninglessness. But you have been brought into Christ, who is God and Lord and Savior, as his child and given purpose 
and identity in Him, security in Him, direction in Him, His truth, eyes to see, all these things that we've been talking about. Ten, we are saved and delivered from fear through adoption. Romans 8, 15 to 16, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Don't go back to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We don't have to live because of Christ being adopted into, grafted into God's family. We don't have to live in fear He is now our parent and our provider and our caregiver. And he is infinitely good, infinitely wise. The resources that he has at his disposal are infinite. We have all of this in him. So why would we grope about and walk about living in fear? You think about that. I belong to him. I'm in his family. I don't have to fear my physical dad anymore. I don't have to fear my husband. I don't have to fear my employer. I'm in him. I'm in Christ. And in his love, what does his love do? It what? It casts out. His perfect love casts out what? Fear. All fear. Yes, all You were adopted as his son or daughter. Whom shall ye fear? You belong to the ultimate one, the most powerful one, the sovereign one. What a thought. Christ, thank you for giving us that. Eleven, I'm moving as quick as I can. We are saved and delivered from a life without real lasting hope. Oh, you can get all kinds of little forms of, little sideways forms of hope in this life. You know, you get the right job. Oh, I hope I just make enough money. You can get all that. You can get these little temporary spurts of hope in this life. But they're all fleeting, right? Because next thing you know, you lose the job. Next thing you know, you lose the house. That's right. Circumstantial. But in Christ, we are saved and delivered from a life without real, lasting, true hope. First Timothy 1.1, Jesus Christ. Paul literally says, as he begins the letter by saying, Jesus Christ is our Savior and hope. We hope in Christ. He is our hope. When I feel hopeless, when I experience hopeless, I set my gaze upon Christ, who is my hope, who is rock solid, who achieved things For me, it's proved in scripture, it's proved through history. It's real, I have this faith. I hope in Christ, he's my hope. This inheritance and all these things that we've been talking about, our hope is in what he has secured for us. He is our hope and he is what? Immutable, which means what? Unchanging, rock solid, real hope in this life. Amen. In him. Twelve, we are saved and delivered from all spiritual, watch this, and physical enemies. How can you say that? Listen, Colossians 2.15, God disarmed the principalities and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ Jesus. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about spiritual enemies. 
principalities. Satan and the demons have no power over you, friend. You do not belong to them. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You have power over them. He has delivered you and saved you from those principalities. They do not rule your life. They do not lead your life. Yes, they tempt you. But they have no power over your life. They can't even indwell you because the Holy Spirit lives within you. And then think about this verse as far as uh, victory and saved and delivered and victory over physical enemies. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Can you have a guy point a gun to your head and shoot you in the head because you believe in Christ? Yes. He just killed your physical body. But he can't touch your soul. He cannot take your faith. He cannot. He can't touch it. It's secured in Jesus Christ. Thinking of that inheritance again, right? That awaits us. What did it say? It was incorruptible. It was imperishable. Translation, doorknob down the street that's threatened. You can't touch it. Amen? We are saved and delivered from all spiritual and physical enemies. Physical in the sense they cannot touch what truly matters. And that is our faith. And that is our prized above all possessions. Prized possession above all. And that's Christ Jesus himself. God who is our inheritance. No one can touch that. No one can take that. Do you know that that's what the uh, Coptic Christians are saying in Egypt right now? They're demolishing the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood. They're demolishing their churches. Some of these churches' buildings have been standing for a thousand years. They're bulldozing them. They're killing Christians. And guess what these, the Coptic Christians are saying? They can take our buildings. They can take our lives. But they can't touch our faith. They're really living out what we're talking about right now. I guarantee you they'd be jumping up for joy in this room right now if they heard this message. Because they'd say, we're living that, brother. Saved and delivered from spiritual and physical enemies. Satan has no power over you. You've been brought out of his reign and control. You do not belong to him. And physical enemies may come, but we should never fear those who can destroy the body. We should fear the one who can destroy the soul in hell. And if we're in Christ Jesus, we have no reason to fear him because we are his children. That's what the very scripture teaches Lastly, 13, we are saved and delivered from the evil time we are living in. From the evil time that we are living in. Galatians 1, 3 to 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins. I love it. There's the gospel again. Gave himself for our sins to deliver us from what? The present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You do not belong to this world you are a sojourner, you are an alien, you are a stranger, you are here for a season to do, to do the work and ministry of the gospel, then you go off to be with your Lord forevermore. What am I telling you? You do not belong to this world. This evil world has no power over you. It doesn't. You do not belong to this evil age. Are we in an evil age or what? Just watch the news for about 30 seconds. You're like, I'm ready to turn it off. Do you belong to this evil age? Are you perpetuating this evil? No. You have been delivered and brought out of the system of the world. It's philosophies. It's evolution. It's false religion. You've been given eyes to see, amen. 
you see the truth, you understand the truth by the grace of God, you do not belong to the system of this world, the present evil age. You don't. I'm not going to go any further. I'm going to wrap up with communion right now, and we'll pick up next week, Lord willing. If you have yet to come to know Christ, He is not your Lord and Savior, I want to urge you to consider this invitation. What must you do to receive all these blessings, all that is in Christ, Christ Himself, and all that He has to offer? Turn from your sin. Turn from your self-sufficiency, your self-righteousness, your self-works. Turn from those things. Acknowledge that those things don't amount to a hill of beans. And place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Everything that we've talked about is in Him. And every person in this room that loves Jesus Christ, that has repented and believed in Him, is experiencing these things. That's why it's so good to remind, we need to be reminded of these things. They can be yours too, friend. Turn from your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. For those of us who do believe, and we want to take a time to celebrate by taking the elements. The juice represents the spilt blood of Jesus Christ. It takes away our sin, and the bread represents his broken body. Basically, what you get to do is you get to take these physical elements and take them, and they represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that we've been talking about, they're, they're represented in, in a visual and physical sense in these elements and so when you take them take a moment just to confess sin take a moment to reflect upon the finished work of Jesus and all these things that he's done for you and ask him to help you live these things out say God I want I want to walk in victory I don't want to be a a victim anymore I want to walk in victory I don't want to walk in fear I don't have to fear I'm your child Whatever it is, whatever area of weakness, struggle, repent of those things, confess them, rehearse these things as you're taking these elements. Think through what Christ has done for you. This is just 13 things. There's a zillion more. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that you'd be with us through communion, Lord. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Help yourself.